You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 15, given on January 15, 1921. Today I will deal with some of the things that may be causing you difficulty in understanding the approach we have pursued up to this point. I want to build a bridge from those difficulties to a set of ideas that will reveal how inadequate the thinking is upon which, with all their comfortable mental habits, people would like to found their understanding of celestial phenomena. We've been studying celestial phenomena from the most various aspects in relation to humanity. Specifically, we've shown again and again how a relationship reveals itself between the forming of the human constitution and what appears in the celestial phenomena. Whether we go by some ancient system of the universe or by the Copernican theories informing our model of the movements of heavenly bodies, we have to relate that model to human nature in various ways. We've seen that this is so. In a science that deals with reality, we can't avoid assuming this actual relationship. Yet the difficulties are formidable. Earlier in these lectures we drew attention to one such difficulty. The moment we try to form ratios between the periods of revolution of the planets of our system, we arrive at incommensurable numbers, and we have to cease calculating, as it were. For where incommensurable numbers enter in, There's no comprehensible unity. When we look for a synthesis of the celestial phenomena with our accustomed mathematical method and way of thinking, the phenomena themselves drive us out of reality. Thus we can't presuppose that we'll be able to explain celestial phenomena somehow using the rigid three-dimensional space that is the basis for our usual geometrical thinking. And then yesterday, when we found ourselves obliged to assume a certain relationship among the sun, the moon, and the earth, that has to express itself somehow in the structure of the human constitution, we immediately ran into difficulties when we tried to comprehend that relationship. The moment we decide that it's valid to assume the interactions of such a trinity, formidable obstacles arise when we try to calculate the spatial relationships. I drew your attention to all these things already. Now we can reach a certain starting point, at least through pure geometry, but it has to be a more heightened degree of geometry. That will help us understand the source of the difficulties we encounter when we try to grasp the interrelationships among the celestial phenomena through spatial calculations. Let's recall our various attempts to grasp what's really at work in giving form to the human constitution itself. 
Then we're led to this. We can try to take seriously the internal structuring of our human constitution, about which we've often spoken in these lectures, as indeed we should. We can talk about the ways in which the structures of the human head, centered in the nervous and sensory systems, are relatively autonomous, likewise the rhythmic system and everything that belongs to it, and finally the metabolic system and all the associated structures within the limbs also display a certain autonomy. Thus we can point to three independent systems within the human constitution. If we proceed methodically and apply the principle of metamorphosis, as we must always do when dealing with organic nature, we can try to form concepts about the ways in which these three members of our human constitution are related to each other in accordance with the principle of metamorphosis. Understand what I mean here. Though it might perhaps be only an image to begin with, we want to begin forming an idea of the ways in which the three members of the human constitution are related to each other. At first glance, that seems very hard indeed, of course. It will be difficult to see the kinds of organs that we encounter in the human head as clear metamorphoses of the organs underlying the systems of the metabolism and the limbs. But if we enter into the morphology of the human constitution deeply enough, in the way I have indicated, then we can begin to find our way after all. What we have to do is think through very fundamentally the concept that in the interrelationship between cranial and long bones. What happens there is a complete inversion, a turning of the inner surface of the bone outward in the same way one turns a glove inside out. In performing this inversion, we also bring about a change in the relationships among the forces at play. The inner surface of the bone becomes the one turned outward. Needless to say, if I merely turned a long bone inside out like a glove, the result would be another long bone. But that won't be the case if we take our start, as we must, from the inherent configuration of the bone. As I described before, the long bone must have been configured by orienting itself inwardly toward a radial quality that runs right through it. Hence the long bone is compelled to arrange its material structure in accordance with the radial principle. When I invert it in such a way that the inner side faces outward, then its configuration will no longer be oriented toward the radial principle, but rather toward the spheroidal. The inner surface now turned outward toward the spheroidal will then receive precisely this form, see figure 1. What was outside before is now inside and vice versa. If you take this into account, for the most extreme case, the metamorphosis of the long bone into the cranial bones, then you'll conclude that the extremes of the human organism, the systems of the limbs and the cranium, constitute a kind of polarity. But you'll also conclude that you can't think about them linearly as simple opposites. Rather, when we transition from one pole to the other, we have to make a corresponding transition from radius to the surface of a sphere. 
unless we have recourse to such complex ideas, it's completely impossible to attain an understanding of the human organism that is at all adequate to the matter at hand. We come now to what constitutes the middle, in a certain sense, the middle member of the human constitution. This will be everything pertaining to the rhythmic system. It will stand right in the middle, and it will somehow form the transition from radial structure to spheroidal. Proceeding from this principle, now it's possible to understand the entire human constitution morphologically. We need to understand clearly how this will look. Suppose we have some organ in the metabolic system, the liver, for example, or any of the other organs belonging preeminently to the metabolism. Parenthesis, we always have to qualify it with the phrase belonging preeminently, for these things overlap and interpenetrate. Close parenthesis. Suppose, then, we begin with such an organ and seek what corresponds to it in the head by way of metamorphic inversion will be able to comprehend the form in the right way only if we can recognize it even though it has undergone a tremendous deformation. So it won't be easy to model these things mathematically. But if we don't get a hold of them somewhere mathematically, then we'll never find our way at all. Moreover, if you keep in mind, take it even as a mere image, that in trying to comprehend the human gestalt we're dealing with something that directs us outward to the movements of the celestial bodies, then you'll realize that when you try to comprehend what reveals itself in the movements of the heavenly bodies, you have to grasp them in a similar way. You can't proceed as though these things unfolded in a way you could capture with a geometry that simply accounts for space in the usual way, and hence is unable to deal with any kind of inversion. The moment we begin to speak of an inversion in the way we've been doing, we have to stop thinking in terms of ordinary space. Ordinary space holds good where we form three-dimensional solids in the conventional way. But as soon as I'm called upon to transform the inner into the outer, then I'm no longer able to continue calculating by using the same conceptions that hold in ordinary space. So if I have to conceive the human gestalt in such a way that I need turnings of a certain kind, then I'll need to conceive the movements of heavenly bodies such that I need turnings there also. I can't possibly proceed like contemporary astronomy, which tries to comprehend the celestial phenomena by employing an ordinary, rigid form of space. Simply take, to begin with, the systems of the human head and metabolism. In order to transition from one to the other, you have to imagine such a turning, and one that includes variations on the forms besides. Let's look for a way of at least beginning to imagine such a thing pictorially. We did preliminary work in this direction when speaking of the Cassini curves and of the circle differently conceived. Ordinarily, the circle is defined as a curve, all of whose points are equidistant from one central point. We were speaking of the circle as a curve, all of whose points are at measured distances from two fixed points, and so that the quotient of the two distances is constant. 
That was our alternative conception of the circle. When we spoke about the Cassini curve, we showed that it has three fundamental forms. As I explained, one form resembles an ellipse, which arises when there is a specific relationship among the constants, which we indicated. The second form is the lemnus gate. The third form is such that both conceptually and analytically it displays unity, but it doesn't display that unity intuitively. This form of the Cassini curve has two branches, but the two branches are still one single curve. To trace the line, we would somehow have to exit space and then enter it again when we trace the second branch. Conceptually, our hand would be drawing a continuous line when drawing the two regions that are separate in our spatial intuition. We can't trace this line continuously within ordinary space, and yet conceptually, what's here above and what's here below is everywhere one single line. Now, as I also mentioned, the same curve can be thought of in another way. You can think it through by asking, what will be the path of a point which, when illumined from a fixed point A, appears with constant intensity of illumination, as seen from another fixed point B? Then I get a Cassini curve as the result of plotting geometrically all the points through which a point must run. If when illumined from a fixed point A, it always has the same intensity of illumination when seen from another fixed point B. Now, it won't be hard for you to imagine that if something shines from A to C, see figure 2, and then by reflection from C to B, the intensity of light will be the same as if reflected from A to D instead, etc. That won't be especially hard for you to imagine. But it gets rather more difficult to imagine when you come to the lemnus gate. The usual way of constructing the geometry with a compass following the laws of reflection, etc., won't be quite so easy to carry through. And it gets still more difficult to imagine with the two-branched curve that the same intensity of light would always be observed from the point B, inside the one branch of the curve, when the original point source of light is in A. For you would have to imagine as you pass from the one branch to the other that the ray of light goes out of space and then shines into space again. You are up against the same difficulty as before, when you were simply asked to trace the two branches as one with a single sweep of the hand through space. Yet if we don't develop this conception, we'll remain unequal to the other task, namely of finding the metamorphosis, or even the mere formal relationship, between any organ in the human head and the corresponding organ in our metabolic system. To find the connection, you absolutely must leave space. In other words, strange and paradoxical as it may sound, if your understanding of any form within your head wants to make the transition to the understanding of any form within the metabolic system, then you can't tarry in space. Then you have to leave space. You have to get right out of yourself and seek something that's not there in space. 
something that's as little inside ordinary space as what lies between the upper and lower branches of a two-branched Cassini curve. In fact, this is just another way of saying that we have to conceive of the metamorphosis as a total inversion. When we think about the connection between the upper and lower branches of the discontinuous curve of Cassini, we're still supposing actual constants, immutable, rigid constants. But if we make the constants themselves variable, as we did in an earlier lecture, then it starts to become possible to conceive, that is to say, by forming doubly variable equations, we'll be able to imagine the upper branch, say, in this way, and the lower one in this, see figure 3. The upper branch will take this form eventually. If you alter the curve of Cassini by putting variables in place of constants, so that you start with functions instead of starting with invariable constants, then you'll get two different kinds of branches. And among the possible forms there will be a case in which one of the two branches comes in, as it were, from the infinite and goes out to the infinite again. This is precisely the relationship from which you should take your start when following certain forms within the human head, comprising them in curves and lines, and then relating them to the forms of organ complexes in the metabolic system, which you'll again seek to capture in curves and lines. And there you have the full complexity of the human gestalt, Indeed, the matter is made no easier to imagine in that you have to think the one line with an outward tendency and the other with its tendency turned inward. See figure 4. You might be prone to say, but I hope only in a fleeting mood, if that's the case, then the human constitution is so complicated I'd almost rather forego real understanding and instead fall back on the ordinary Philistine understanding of the body that has been put into practice by present-day anatomy and physiology. There we are not called upon to make such prodigious efforts to let mental images vanish and yet again not vanish or turn them inside out and all the rest. But in that case, you'll never really understand the human constitution. You'll only delude yourself into thinking you understand it. Suppose you look into it and recognize that there's something in the human constitution that falls right out of space, is not in space at all, but obliges you, for instance, to imagine spatially separated systems of lines, inherently united with each other, and yet united by a principle which is different from that underlying three-dimensional space. Thinking along these lines will take you a long way toward the conception I'm about to introduce. You'll at least be able to entertain the thought in a formal sense. Nobody can possibly object to what I'm about to say in purely formal terms, because we arrive at this concept in exactly the same way we arrive at a concept in mathematics. It can't be objected that the thing can't be proved of the like, for it's merely a matter of arriving at an internally consistent idea. So imagine for a moment that you had to do not only with the ordinary space conceived in its three dimensions, but with a counter space or anti space. Let me call it counter space for the moment, 
and I'll try to evoke a provisional idea of it as follows. Suppose I form the thought of ordinary three-dimensional rigid space. I form the first dimension. I form the second dimension. And I form the third dimension. See figure 5. In constructing these three dimensions, I have, so to speak, fulfilled the conceptual requirements of the three-dimensional space with which I am ordinarily confronted. Now, as you know, in any such domain, you can't only advance up to a certain degree of intensity, you can subtract from it too. And as you go on subtracting, taking away, eventually you arrive at the negation of it. As you are well aware, there is not only wealth but also debt. Likewise, I can make the three dimensions not just arise in thought, I can also make them vanish. Only now I imagine the arising and vanishing to be a real process, something that really exists. Of course, it's possible to think only two dimensions instead of three, but that's not my meaning. What I mean now is that the reason why I have only two dimensions isn't that I never had a third, rather it's because I had a third and it has vanished. The two dimensions are an outcome of the coming into being and vanishing again of the third dimension. I now have a space which, although it outwardly shows only two dimensions, must be conceived inwardly as having two third dimensions, one positive and the other negative. The negative dimension springs from a source that no longer can be there in my three-dimensional space at all. Nor should I think of it as a fourth dimension in the conventional sense. No, I have to think of it as standing in the same relationship to the third dimension as positive to negative. See figure 6. And now, suppose that I were to integrate something like this into what we just built up, see figure 7, and that it were somehow really present, but real in the way that things usually are in the real world, something that approximates generally what I have drawn here, but doesn't necessarily conform to it pedantically in all details. This needn't cause you any great surprise, for in outer sense perceptible reality you never find mathematical figures reproduced in any other way. They're always only approximations. So, that if I claim that the picture represents something real, you'll only expect it to do so in an approximate sense. Now imagine I would have to draw a reality that corresponded to this. I would have to draw it in not quite precisely this way, but rather I'd have to draw something flattened. Then it would correspond. I want to suggest that something was there and then vanished. Let's say that the density of an effect indicated by this dark shading arose there but then weakened again. See figure 8. Then you're left with a sphere that has a denser portion in the middle region. I ask you now, compare what's been drawn here first of all with the real system of the universe as it appears to our eyes, the cosmic sphere, with all the stars widely dispersed and then the stars heaped up in accordance with this principle, which we usually call the Milky Way. But compare it also with any of the popular star maps. The picture we have shown, let us still take it simply as a picture, is fundamentally equivalent 
to what is always being shown, the passage of the sun or of the earth through the zodiac, with the north and south poles placed somewhere out there above and below. You see, the conception we've been building up is not all that far removed from the reality of the outer world. We'll be seeking the real relationships already in the next couple of lectures. But the conception we have now built up is still insufficient for an understanding of all those things we adduced with regard to the human constitution. We have to go further. Now we have to say, let the second dimension vanish as well, so that we're left with only a single dimension with a straight line. But this is no ordinary straight line drawn within three-dimensional space. Rather, it's the line that remains after we have made the third and then also the second dimension vanish. And now let's allow the first dimension to vanish also. Then we're left with a mere point. Bear in mind that we have arrived at this point by way of the successive vanishing of three dimensions. Now let's suppose that this point were to present itself to us in reality as having existence in its own right. But if it is something that's exerting an effect, how must we imagine its efficacy? In imagining its efficacy, we can't relate its effects to any point that lies, let's say, on the x-axis. The x-axis doesn't exist. It has vanished. Nor can we relate it to anything with an x and y and a y-coordinate, since they don't exist either. They too have vanished from space. Nor can we relate it in its efficacy to the third dimension of space. Rather, we have to say that when it displays its efficacy to us, we're compelled to relate that to what lies completely outside three-dimensional space. It follows from our own lines of thinking that it's impossible to relate this point to anything that could implicate it within three-dimensional space. We can relate it only to something that's outside three-dimensional space altogether. We can relate it neither to x-deleted, in quotes, nor to y-deleted, in quotes, nor to z-deleted, in quotes, but only to what deletes x, y, z, hence to something that isn't within three-dimensional space at all. We began by framing this as a formal notion, but this notion becomes exceedingly real. Contemporary science hopes to master such things with comfortable ideas, but they become very, very real when we begin to enter into things more deeply. Really focus your intentionality, then contemplate the process of seeing in conjunction with the structure of the eye, EYE. You are perhaps aware, in other lectures I have often spoken about it, that the eye can't be regarded merely as a thing formed from within the body outward, but also as something that's organized into the body, inwardly from outside. You can trace the forming of it from without inward by studying the phylogenetic development of lower animals and then considering the act of sight itself. When you study the process of sight, you have to seek to grasp inwardly how the process of sight is stimulated from without and how the organ is also adapted to this stimulation from without. 
grasp how it is that, as the process works on inward to the optic nerve and thence into the organism as a whole, it vanishes, as it were, within the larger organism. I know you can find the termination of the optic nerves, and yet this also expresses itself only approximately. If you enter into the finer structures, it's justified to say that it disappears into the organism. And if you turn then to compare the process of sight with the associated organs conscientiously with the process of secretion in the kidneys, then you'll end up having to relate the duct that leads outward for the secretion of the kidneys to what is working from without inward where the eye transitions into the optic nerve. If you want to arrive at concepts which establish connections between these two things so that you can comprehend the phenomena of this or that process in light of their relationship, then you'll need to avail yourself of ideas such as those previously indicated. If you think such ideas regarding the process of sight within three-dimensional space and then seek what corresponds to that in the process of renal excretion or vice versa, you have to think what is effected there in such a way that you exit three-dimensional space altogether. You have to go through a thought process that's exactly like what I just did in extinguishing the three dimensions. Otherwise, you won't find your way. You have to proceed in the same way if you're trying to understand the curves formed in the heavens by first investigating the orbits of Venus and Mercury, and then investigating the orbits of Jupiter and Mars. I mean the apparent orbits as we observe them with our eyes, loops and all. If you use the polar coordinate system, for example, you can begin by taking the node of Venus as the pole of your coordinate system in three-dimensional space. That approach will work in the case of Venus. But you can't model the retrograde motion of Mars using the same principle. In that case, you have to start from the ideal premise that the poles of any relevant system of polar coordinates will be outside three-dimensional space. And if you try to comprehend every part of the system, you'll confront the necessity of treating the coordinates in such a way that in one instance, for example in the case of the orbit of Venus with its loop, you may start from the pole of the coordinate system and assume these polar axes here, see figure 9, but in another instance, in the case of the orbit of Jupiter or of Mars and its loop, the only way this will work is if you proceed differently. Now, you'll say to yourself, I'm going to construct polar coordinates with a different kind of origin, not one in which I need to add something in order to arrive at the polar coordinates. Instead, I'm going to take as the origin of my system of polar coordinates the sphere, that is, everything behind it, extending into a realm of indeterminacy. See figure 10. Then I get polar axes such as these, where in each case, instead of adding, I must always leave something out. The curve I then obtain in that way also has something like a center, but the center is in immeasurable spheres. It might prove necessary then for more profound research into the paths of the planets 
that we make use of the idea that in constructing the orbits of the inner planets, we have to imagine them as having some kind of center within ordinary space. But that when we want to think about the centers of the orbits of Jupiter, Mars, etc., it's necessary for us to leave ordinary space behind. You see, here we have to transcend space. It's entirely necessary. If you're really conscientious in your efforts to comprehend the phenomena, the concepts associated with mere three-dimensional space prove insufficient. You have to envisage the interplay of two kinds of space. One of them with the ordinary three dimensions you can imagine ideally as issuing radially from a central point. The second kind, which is continually annihilating the first, cannot be thought of as proceeding from a point. Rather, it has to be thought of as proceeding from the infinitely remote sphere. In the former case, the point has a surface area of zero. In the latter, it has the surface area of an infinitely great sphere. Hence, we have to distinguish between two different kinds of points, between a point that has a surface area of zero and turns it outward, and a point that has the surface area of an infinitely large spherical surface and turns it inward. In purely geometrical terms, it's sufficient to imagine points in the abstract. In the realm of reality, it's not sufficient. We'll never succeed by imagining points that are merely abstract. In every instance, we have to ask whether the point we're imagining has its curvature turned inward or outward. Its field of forces will vary accordingly. But you have to keep one other thing in mind. Of course, you might imagine that you had somewhere caught this point, which is really a sphere. To begin with, see figure 11. Since it dwells in the infinitely remote spaces, you needn't imagine it just here, A. You can equally well imagine it a little farther out, B.C. You can imagine it to be anywhere out there, so long as you leave this sphere free. For that has been left blank, so to speak. This is the inverted circle or the inverted sphere, if you will. But now, suppose the following might be the case. Everything that lies outside this abstract circle, hence is this point that turns its curvature inward, for recall that the entirety of the space that lies outside the spherical surface is just that, a point that turns its curvature inward. Suppose this space had its limit somewhere after all. You might be able to go out far away, very far. Suppose, however, the reality were such that you couldn't go just anywhere, but somewhere there would, be, there would lie a limit of an entirely different kind. What would the consequence of that be? It follows of necessity that somewhere here, P, the thing would have to appear that belongs to what lies outside. A little sphere would have to arise inside that belongs to that which lies outside. Then you'd have to realize that out there beyond a certain sphere something exists. But I can see what lies outside by looking in here, P, because it's what reappears there, what makes itself felt there again the continuation of that which lies outside. The continuation of what is far away out there makes itself felt in here. 
the thing that I'm seeking when I go out into infinite distances reappears to me from out of the center. These are the kind of ideas you should develop to the degree that's needed. At any rate, they give the impression of being entirely justified in formal terms. But you'll be able to do something entirely different with them if you attempt to penetrate outer reality with such ideas. Consider, for example, that there might be a phenomenon in celestial space, for the time being, let's call it moon. This phenomenon cannot be understood by simply saying, the moon is a body, there's its center, and let's investigate this body with its center accordingly. Assume that, to put it euphemistically, this way of thinking didn't quite fit reality. I would have to say instead, if I proceed from a point in my world ever further and further outward, then I arrive at a place where I don't find any more celestial bodies, where, if I'm talking about reality, I don't find plain old empty Euclidean space either. Rather, I find something that compels me, by means of its reality, to think its continuation here, P. Then I would be obliged to conceive the space contained within this moon as a piece of the entire universe, with the exception of all that exists in the way of stars and so forth outside the moon. I would have to think, on the one hand, of everything in cosmic space in the way of stars. I would have to deal with those in a unified way. That's an initial presupposition. But I wouldn't be able to treat the inside of the moon, the spatial content of the moon, in this same way. Instead, I would have to say, there, on the one hand, I go out into the far spaces. Somewhere out there, I presume, is the sphere. Though it's only the apparent sphere to begin with, I have to conceive it somehow as being founded upon something that exerts a real effect. But, no matter what I discover in the far reaches of space, what lies inside the spherical surface of the moon has nothing whatsoever to do with it. It only has to do only with what begins where the stars come to an end. It's a fragment that in some strange way belongs not to my universe, but to that universe to which all the stars do not belong. If there's such a thing within a universe, then what we have is a kind of implant into the universe, something that reveals inner qualities completely different from the things surrounding it. And then we may compare the relation of such a moon to its surrounding heavens with the relation which obtains, for instance, between the secretions of the kidneys with the organic structure that underlies them and on the other hand the structure and function of the eyes. We'll proceed from that starting point tomorrow. It's not a personal quirk of mine that I have to try to foist upon you complicated ideas about the structure of the universe. Truth is, equipped with other notions, you won't get anywhere unless you just say to yourselves, quote, let's organize the phenomena according to these concepts, and then if we hit a limit somewhere, well, then that's it. That's as far as we can go, close quote. If we end up with such complicated ideas, it's not because I'm addicted to complexity. It's because reality itself forms them as it leads you on to an understanding of the structure of the universe. The end of lecture 15.